0: Chapter 10 of The God of All Comfort. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lee. The God of All Comfort by Hannah Whittle Smith. Chapter 10 Self Examination. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Probably no subject connected with the religious life has been the cause of more discomfort and suffering to tender consciences than has this subject of self-examination, and none has led more frequently to the language of much less which we found in our last chapter to be so great an obstacle to all spiritual growth. And yet it has been so constantly impressed upon us that it is our duty to examine ourselves, that the eyes of most of us are continually turned inward, and our gaze is fixed on our own interior states and feelings to such an extent that self, and not Christ, has come at last to fill the whole horizon. By self I mean here, all that centers around this great big me of ours. Its vocabulary rings out the changes on I, me, my. It is a vocabulary with which we are all very familiar. The questions we ask ourselves in our times of self-examination are proof of this. Am I earnest enough? Have I repented enough? Have I the right sort of feelings? Do I realize religious truth as I ought? Are my prayers fervent enough? Is my interest in religious things as great as it ought to be? Do I love God with enough fervor? Is the Bible as much of a delight to me as it is to others? All these and a hundred more questions about ourselves and our experiences fill up all our thoughts, and sometimes our little self-examination books as well, and day and night we ring the changes on the person pronoun I, me, my to the utter exclusion of any thought concerning Christ, or any word concerning he, his, him. The misery of this many of us know only too well but the idea that the bible is full of commands to self-examination is so prevalent that it seems one of the most truly pious things we can do and miserable as it makes us we still feel it is our duty to go on with it in spite of an ever-increasing sense of hopelessness and despair in view of this idea many will be surprised to find that there are only two texts in the whole bible that speak of self-examination, and that neither of these can at all be made to countenance the morbid self-analysis that results from what we call self-examination. One of these passages I have quoted at the head of this chapter. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. This is simply an exhortation to the Corinthians, who were in a sadly backsliding condition, to settle definitely whether they were still believers or not. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. It does not say examine whether you are sufficiently earnest, or whether you have the right feelings, or whether your motives are pure, but simply and only whether you are in the faith. In short, do you believe in Christ, or do you not? A simple question that required only a simple straightforward answer, yes or no. This is what it meant for the Corinthians then, and it is what it means for us now. The other passage reads, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Paul was here writing of the abuses of greediness and drunkenness which had crept in at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And in this exhortation to examine themselves, he was simply urging them to see to it that they did none of these things but partook of this religious feast in a decent and orderly manner. In neither of these passages is there any hint of that morbid searching out of one's emotions and experiences that is called self-examination in the present day, and it is amazing that out of two such simple passages should have been evolved a teaching fraught with so much misery to the earnest conscientious souls. The truth is there is no scripture authority whatever for this disease of modern times, and those who are afflicted with it are the victims of mistaken ideas of God's ways with his children. Some of my readers, however, are probably asking themselves whether I have not overlooked a large class of passages that tell us to watch, and whether these passages do not mean watching ourselves, or in other words, self-examination. I will quote one of these passages as a sample, that we may see what their meaning really is. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for ye know not when the time is. for the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his home and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye, therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at the cock-crowing, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. I think if we carefully examine this passage and others like it, we shall see that instead of teaching self-examination, they teach something that is exactly the opposite. They tell us to watch, it is true, but they do not tell us to watch ourselves. They are plainly commands to forget ourselves in watching for another. The return of the Lord is the thing we are to watch for. His coming footsteps, and not our own past footsteps, are to be the object of our gazing. We are to watch as a porter watches for the return of the master of the house, and are to be ready, as a good watchman should be, to receive and welcome him at any moment that he may appear. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Watching what? themselves no watching for him of course if we can imagine a porter instead of watching for the return of his master spending his time morbidly analyzing his own past conduct trying to discover whether he had been faithful enough and becoming so absorbed in self-examination as to let the master's call go unheeded and the master's return unnoted we shall have a picture of what goes on in the experience of the soul that is given up to the mistaken habit of watching and looking itself instead of watching and looking for christ these passages therefore instead of teaching self-examination teach exactly the opposite god says look unto me and ye shall be saved but the self-analyzing soul says i must look unto myself if i am to have any hope of being saved it must be by getting myself right that salvation is to come and yet the phrase looking unto jesus is generally acknowledged to be one of the watchwords of the christian religion And all Christians everywhere will unhesitatingly declare that, of course, this is the one thing we all ought to do. But after saying this, they will go on in their old way of self-introspection, trying to find some salvation in their own inward feelings, or in their own works of righteousness, and being continually plunged into despair, because they never find it. It is a fact that we see what we look at, and cannot see what we look away from, and we cannot look unto Jesus while we are looking at ourselves. The power for victory and the power for endurance are to come from looking unto Jesus and considering him, not from looking unto or considering ourselves, or our circumstances, or our sins, or our temptations. Looking at ourselves causes weakness and defeat. The reason for this is that when we look at ourselves, we see nothing but ourselves, and our own weaknesses and poverty and sin. We do not and cannot see the remedy and the supply for these and as a matter of course we are defeated the remedy and the supply are there all the time but they are not to be found in the place where we are looking for they are not in self but in christ and we cannot be looking at ourselves and looking at christ at the same time again i repeat that it is the inexorable nature of things that what we look at that we shall see and that if we want to see the lord we must look at the lord and not itself It is a simple question of choice for us whether it shall be I or Christ, whether we shall turn our backs on Christ and look at ourselves, or whether we shall turn our backs on self and look at Christ. I was very much helped many years ago by the following sentence in a book by Adelaide Proctor, For one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. It was entirely contrary to all I had previously thought right but it carried conviction to my soul, and delivered me from a habit of morbid self-examination and introspection that had made my life miserable for years. It was an unspeakable deliverance, and my experience since leads me to believe that even a better motto would be Take no look at self at all, but look only and always at Christ. The Bible law in regard to the self-life is not that the self-life must be watched and made better, but that it must be put off, The Apostle, when urging the Ephesian Christians to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they had been called, tells them that they must put off the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The old man is, of course, the self-life, and this self-life, which we know only too well is indeed corrupt according to deceitful lusts, is not to be improved, but to be put off. It is to be crucified. Paul says that our old man is crucified, put to death with Christ. And he declares of the Colossians that they could no longer lie, seeing that they had put off the old man with his deeds. Some people's idea of crucifying the old man is to set him up on a pinnacle, and then walk around him and stick nagging pins into him to make him miserable, but keeping him alive all the time. But if I understand language, crucifixion means death, not making miserable and to crucify the old man means to kill him outright and to put him off as a snake puts off its dead and useless skin it is of no use then for us to examine self and to tinker with it in the hope of improving it for the thing the lord wants us to do with it is to get rid of it fenelon in his spiritual letters says that the only way to treat self is to refuse to have anything to do with it he says we must turn our backs on this great big eye of ours and to say to it i do not know you and am not interested in you and i refuse to pay any attention to you whatever but self is always determined to secure attention and would rather be thought badly of than not to be thought of at all and self-examination with all its miseries often gives us a sort of morbid satisfaction to the self-life in us and even deludes self into thinking it a very humble and pious sort of self after all the only safe and scriptural way is to have nothing to do with self at all either with good self or with bad self but simply to ignore self altogether and to fix our eyes and our thoughts and our expectations on the lord and on him alone we must substitute for the personal pronouns i me my the pronouns he him his and must ask ourselves not am i good but is he good the psalmist says mine eyes are ever toward the lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net as long as our eyes are toward our own feet and toward the net in which they are entangled we only get into worse tangles but when we keep our eyes toward the lord he plucks our feet out of the net this is a point in practical experience that i have tested hundreds of times and i know it is a fact no matter what sort of a snarl i may have been in whether inward or outward i have always found that while i kept my eyes on the snarl and tried to unravel it it grew worse and worse BUT WHEN I TURNED MY EYES AWAY FROM THE SNARL AND KEPT THEM FIXED ON THE LORD, HE ALWAYS SOONER OR LATER unraveled IT AND DELIVERED ME. HAVE YOU EVER WATCHED A FARMER PLOWING A FIELD? IF YOU HAVE, YOU WILL HAVE NOTICED THAT IN ORDER TO MAKE STRAIGHT FURROWS, HE IS OBLIGED TO FIX HIS EYES ON A TREE, OR A POST IN THE FENCE, OR SOME OBJECT AT THE FARTHER END OF THE FIELD, AND TO GUIDE HIS PLOW UNWAVERINGLY TOWARD THAT OBJECT. If he begins to look back at the furrow behind him in order to see whether he has made a straight furrow, his plough begins to jerk from side to side, and the furrow he is making becomes a zigzag. If we would make straight paths for our feet, we must do what the Apostle says he did. We must forget the things that are behind, and reaching forth to those which are before, we must press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To forget the things that are behind is an essential part of the pressing forward toward the prize of our high calling. And I am convinced this prize can never be reached unless we will consent to this forgetting. When we do consent to it, we come near to putting an end to all our self-examination. For if we may not look back over our past misdoings, we shall find but little food for self-reflective acts. WE COMPLAIN OF SPIRITUAL HUNGER, AND TORMENT OURSELVES TO KNOW WHY OUR HUNGER IS NOT SATISFIED. THE PSALMIST SAYS, THE EYES OF ALL WAIT UPON THEE, AND THOU GIVEST THEM THEIR MEAT IN DUE SEASON. HAVING OUR EYES UPON OURSELVES, AND ON OUR OWN HUNGER, WILL NEVER BRING A SUPPLY OF SPIRITUAL MEAT. WHEN A MAN'S LARDER IS EMPTY AND HE IS STARVING, HIS EYES ARE NOT OCCUPIED WITH LOOKING AT THE EMPTINESS OF HIS LARDER, BUT ARE TURNED TOWARD THE SOURCE FROM WHICH HE HOPES OR EXPECTS TO GET A SUPPLY OF FOOD. To examine self is to be like a man who should spend his time in examining his empty larder instead of going to the market for a supply to fill it. No wonder such Christians seem to be starving to death in the midst of all the fullness there is for them in Christ. They never see that fullness, for they never look at it. And again I repeat that the thing we look at is the thing we see. I feel as if I could not repeat this evident truism too often, for somehow people seem to lay aside their common sense when they come to the subject of religion and seem to expect to see things upon which they have deliberately kept their backs turned. They cry out, O Lord, reveal thyself. But instead of looking at Him, they look at themselves, and keep their gaze steadily fixed on their own inward feelings, and then wonder at the mysterious dealings of God in hiding His face from their fervent prayers. But how can they see what they do not look at? It is never God who hides His face from us, but it is always we who hide our face from Him, by turning to Him the back and not the face. The prophet reproaches the children of Israel with this, and adds that they set up their abominations in the house which is called by God's name. When Christians spend their time examining their own condition, raking up all their sins, and bemoaning their shortcomings, what is this but to set up the abomination of their own sinful self upon the chief pedestal in their hearts, and to make it the center of their whole religious life, and of all their care and efforts? they gaze at this great big miserable self until it fills their whole horizon and they turn their back on the lord until he is lost sight of altogether i will venture to say that there are many christians who for one look at the lord will give a thousand looks at self and who for one hour spent in rejoicing in him will spend hundreds of hours bemoaning themselves we are never anywhere commanded to behold our emotions nor our experiences nor even our sins but we are commanded to turn our backs upon all these and to behold the lamb of god who taketh away our sins one look at christ is worth more for salvation than a million looks at self yet so mistaken are our ideas we seem unable to avoid thinking that the mortification which results from self-examination must have in it some saving power because it makes us so miserable for we have to travel a long way on our heavenly journey before we fully learn that there is no saving power in misery and that a cheerful, confident faith is the only successful attitude for the aspiring soul. In Isaiah we see God's people complaining because they fasted, and he did not see, afflicted their souls, and he took no knowledge. And God gave them this significant answer. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast? and an acceptable day to the lord whoever else is pleased with the miseries of our self-examination it is very certain that god is not he does not want us to bow down our heads as a bulrush any more than he wants his people of old to do it and he calls upon us as he did upon them to forget our own miserable selves and to go to work to lessen the miseries of others is not this the fast that i have chosen he says to loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, in that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him? This service for others is of infinitely greater value to the Lord than the longest seasons of self-examination and self-abasement, and I am convinced that he has shown us here what is the surest way of deliverance out of the slough of misery into which our habits of self-examination have plunged us. He declares emphatically that if we will only keep the sort of fast he approves of, by giving up our own fast of afflicting our souls and bowing down our heads as a bulrush, and will instead draw out our souls to the hungry, and will try to bear the burdens and relieve the miseries of others, then shall our light rise in obscurity." in our darkness be as the noonday and the lord shall guide us continually satisfying our souls in drought and making fat our bones we shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not all this is exactly what we have been striving for but our strivings have been in our way not in god's the fast we have chosen has been to afflict our souls to bow down our heads as bulrushes, and to sit in sackcloth and ashes. And, as a consequence, instead of our bones being made fat, and our souls refreshed like a watered garden, we have found only leanness, and thirst, and misery. Our own fasts, no matter how fervently they may be carried on, nor how many groans and tears may accompany them, can never bring us anything else. Now let us try God's fast. Let us lay aside all care for ourselves, and care instead for our needy brothers and sisters. Let us stop trying to do something for our own poor, miserable self-life, and begin to try to do something to help the spiritual lives of others. Let us give up our hopeless efforts to find something in ourselves to delight in, and delight ourselves only in the Lord and in His service. And if we will but do this, all the days of our misery will be ended." BUT SOME MAY ASK WHETHER IT IS NOT NECESSARY TO EXAMINE OURSELVES IN ORDER TO FIND OUT WHAT IS WRONG AND WHAT NEEDS MENDING. THIS WOULD, OF COURSE, BE NECESSARY IF WE WERE OUR OWN workmanship. BUT SINCE WE ARE GOD'S workmanship AND NOT OUR OWN, HE IS THE ONE TO EXAMINE US, FOR HE IS THE ONLY ONE WHO CAN TELL WHAT IS WRONG. THE MAN WHO MAKES WATCHES IS THE ONE TO EXAMINE A WATCH WHEN IT IS OUT OF ORDER AND TO SET IT STRAIGHT. WE HAVE TOO MUCH GOOD SENSE TO MEDDLE WITH OUR WATCHES why is it that we have not enough good sense to give up meddling with ourselves surely we must see that the examining of the lord is the only kind of examination that is of any use his examination is like that of a physician who examines in order to cure while our examination is like that of the patient who only becomes more of a hypochondriac the more he examines the symptoms of his disease but the question may be asked whether when there has been actual sin there ought not to be self-examination and self-reproach at least for a time this is a fallacy which deceives a great many it seems too much to believe that we can be forgiven without first going through a season of self-reproach but what is the bible teaching john tells us that if we confess our sins not bewail them nor yet try to excuse them but simply confess them, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All that God wants is that we should turn to Him at once, acknowledge our sin, and believe in His forgiveness. And every minute that we delay doing this, in order to spend the time in self-examination and self-reproach, is only adding further sin to that which we have already committed if ever we need to look away from self and to have our eyes turned to the lord it is just when we become conscious of having sinned against him the greater the multitude of our enemies the greater and more immediate our need of god all through the bible we are taught this lesson of death to self and life in christ alone not i but christ was not intended to be a unique experience of paul's but was simply a declaration of what ought to be the experience of every christian we sing sometimes thou o christ art all i want but as a fact we really want a great many other things we want good feelings we want fervor and earnestness we want realizations we want satisfying experiences and we continually examine ourselves to try to find out why we do not have these things we think if we could only discover our points of failure we should be able to set them straight but there is no healing or transforming power in gazing at our failures The only road to Christlikeness is to behold not our own hatefulness, but His goodness and beauty. We grow like what we look at, and if we spend our lives looking at our hateful selves, we shall become more and more hateful. Do we not find as a fact that self-examination, instead of making us better, always seems to make us worse? Beholding self, we are more and more changed into the image of self, while on the contrary, if we spend our time beholding the glory of the Lord, that is, letting our minds dwell upon his goodness and his love, and trying to drink in his spirit, the inevitable result will be that we shall be, slowly perhaps, but surely, changed into the image of the Lord upon whom we are gazing. Fenelon says that we should never indulge in any self-reflective acts, either of mortification at our failures, or of congratulation at our successes but that we should continually consign self and all self's doings to oblivion and should keep our interior eyes upon the lord only it is very hard in self-examination not to try to find excuses for our faults and our self-reflective acts are often in danger of being turned into self-glorifying ones the only way is to ignore self altogether and to forget there is any such being in existence No one who does not understand this can possibly appreciate the comfort and relief it is to be done with self and all self-reflective acts. I have known Christian workers whose lives have been one long torment because of these self-reflective acts, and I am convinced that the Blue Mondays, of which so many clergymen complain, are nothing but the result of an indulgence in self-reflective acts concerning their services in the Church the day before. The only way to treat all forms of self-reflective acts of whatever kind is simply to give them up. They always do harm and never good. They are bound to result in one of two things. Either they fill us full of self-praise and self-satisfaction, or they plunge us into the depths of discouragement and despair. And whichever it be, the soul is in this way inevitably shut out from any sight of God and of His salvation. One of the most effectual ways of conquering the habit is to make a rule that whenever we are tempted to examine ourselves, we will always at once begin to examine the Lord instead and will let thoughts of His love and His all-sufficiency sweep out all thoughts of our own unworthiness or our own helplessness. I have been trying in this book to set the Lord before our eyes in all the beauty of His character and His ways, in the hope that the sight will be so ravishing as to take our eyes off everything else. But no revelation of God will be of any use if we will not look at it, but will persist in turning our backs on what has been revealed and in gazing instead at our own inward experiences. For again I must repeat that we cannot see self and see the Lord at the same time, and that while we are examining self, we cannot be looking at Him. Fenelon says concerning self-examination, there is something very hidden and very deceptive in the suffering it causes. For while you seem to yourself to be wholly occupied with the glory of God, in your inmost soul it is self alone that occasions all your trouble you are indeed desirous that god should be glorified but you wish it should take place by means of your perfection and you thus cherish the sentiments of self-love it is simply a refined pretext for dwelling in self it is a sort of infidelity to simple faith when we desire to be continually assured that we are doing well it is in fact a desire to know what we are doing which we shall never know and of which it is the will of god we should be ignorant it is trifling by the way in order to reason about the way the safest and shortest course is to renounce forget and abandon self and through faithfulness to god to think no more of it this is the whole of religion to get out of self and self-love in order to get into god what we must do therefore is to shut the door definitely and resolutely at once and forever upon self and all of self's experiences whether they be good or bad And to say with the psalmist, I have set the Lord, not self, always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. End of chapter ten. Recording by Deborah Lee.